This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. Hi. Is anybody here for the first time? Cool. Welcome. I noticed I was coming out of the house across the street after Zaza instruction ended, and everybody was splitting. And I'm like, why is everybody... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like, I remember when I started, you go to Zaza Instruction and you're kind of like there for, for half a day, you know, and you're kind of like, but it's interesting, it's like that view of like, um, I'm going to go learn how to do the practice, but I don't want to hear what they have to say about it, which I makes sense to me, you know, <laughs> so like, tell me the, tell me the method, but don't tell me all the ideas, I'll, I'll figure that part out on my own. So I apologize, you're going to hear all the ideas. But the good news is it probably won't make sense. (laughs) So I just got back from Japan, so I'm going to go old school today. Um, So, case 96 of the Shoyoroku. Kyuho asked, served Sekiso. So Sekiso was Tozan's Dharma cousin. Tozan was the fountain. When we say soul Tozen, that To is Tozan. So Tozan is considered the founder of, of uh, what was in China the Saotong lineage and what became the Soto lineage in Japan. So he had a Dharma cousin. So that means it's just like cousins, but it's like with Dharma. <laughs> <laughs> Right? <laughs> so, Kyuho was uh, Sekiso's attendant. So there's two kinds of attendants. There's the Jisha, uh, which is kind of like what Drew is doing today, mostly like handing you, kind of a ceremonial attendant. And then there's a little bit more day-to-day life attendant. That's called Anja. Uh, anja means the doing person. Um, Doan means the Zendo Anja which means the, the meditation hall doing person. So anyway, Kyuho was Sekiso's attendant. After Sekiso passed, the assembly wanted to make the head monk the abbot of the temple. So Kyuho was Sekiso's attendant, but Kyuho was not the head monk. There was another guy that was the head monk. Kyuho, the master's attendant, did not approve or acknowledge the head monk. He said... Wait until I examine him. If he understands our late master's spirit and intention, then I will serve him the same way I served our late teacher. So he asked the head monk, the attendant of the former abbot, goes to ask the new head monk, whose people want to be the next abbot. And the question he puts to him, he puts forth the previous teachers, the dead teachers' most famous phrases. And he says, Totally cease, completely extinguish, become a cool land of desolation, become one awareness for 10,000 years, become cold ashes and a withered tree, become a fragrant censer in an ancient shrine, become a vertical strip of white silk. Tell me, what sort of matter did our teacher clarify with this? And the new head monk, who's supposed to be the next abbot, says, He clarified the matter of one color. 
And then uh, Kyuho says, If that's so, you have not understood our late master's spirit. And then the new head monk says, or the old head monk, new abbot, says, Don't you acknowledge me? Pass me that incense. And Kyuho passes the incense. They never say this new this head monk's name. That's kind of like when they have people with red shirts on in Star Trek. <laughs> like, if they don't tell you the person's name, that means that they're going to biff it. You know? um, pass me that incense. So Kyuho lit the incense, and then the head monk says, If I had not understood our late master's spirit, I would not be able to die while the smoke of this incense rises. And at that moment, the head monk just willingly dies in Zaza <laughs> to demonstrate his understanding of the old master's spirit. And then this is the best part. The old attendant of the former master leans in and he pats him on the back. And he says, Is that the world? <laughs> he, he caresses him on the back so this guy just dies to prove a point and the attendant in the, middle, in the midst of this debate and the attendant caresses him on the back and he says dying while sitting or standing is not impossible but you still could not even dream of our late master's spirit <laughs> so there's a verse the school of Sekiso was intimately transmitted by attendant Kyuho. Expiring the fragrant smoke does not lead to the authentic stream. The crane in the moonlit nest creates a dream of 1,000 years, while the man on the snowy hut is deluded by the merit of this one color. Cutting off all ten directions through sitting is still a miserable failure. Moving intimately one step forward would witness soaring dragons. So there's a little backstory here. There always is a backstory. It's very tricky. When you read koans, you've got to read the footnotes. <laughs> Don't skip the footnotes because there's all of these references. You know, it's kind of like if you're like my age or older and you try to watch TikTok and you don't know what the fuck anybody's talking about. <laughs> You know, you got to have somebody have like a youth glossary or something to like figure out what anybody, like what is Stan, you know? Um, so when he says earlier, become a vertical strip of white silk, that's a reference to a waterfall. A vertical strip of white silk is a waterfall. And um, there's a, a story in a famous legend that carps can become dragons and soar into the heavens. Tenryu, that dra heavenly dragons. Carps can become dragons and soar into the heavens if they can get up waterfalls. You have to pass a certain amount of waterfalls for a carp to become a dragon. You know, So the idea that cutting off all ten directions and sitting still is a miserable failure is like that carp is not jumping the waterfall. You know, but if you move intimately one step forward, then you will become the soaring dragon. You don't bump your forehead against the rock and get carried away by the water. So there's another story that is a reference to this story. 
and this telling of it is from Shohaku Okamura. He says, Later a monk asked Ryuge, Ryuge is a different person, Later a monk asked Ryuge about the meaning of Sekiso's verse, the cease doing. Bless you. Ryuge says, you know, like, so they say, what is the meaning of this totally cease doing? And instead of hand me that incense and I'll die, Ryuge says, it is like a crook slipping into a vacant house. This is Shohaku Okamura's commentary. This saying shows Ryuge's understanding is very different from the head monks. He understands ceasing as relinquishing the struggle for gain based on our desires and settling down here and now. For the head monk, ceasing is death. This is a common misunderstanding of the Buddhist teaching of emptiness. So Koro Sawaki says about this. Once a monk asked Master Ryuge, how did the ancient master finally cease doing things and completely settle down? Ryuge said, it was like a thief slipping into a vacant house, Kodosawaki says. A burglar breaks into an empty house. He can't steal anything. There's no need to escape. Nobody chases him. It's nothing. Understand, it's nothing. Awakening is like a burglar breaking into an empty house. Although you have difficulty getting in, there's nothing to steal. You don't need to run, and nobody's after you. The whole thing's a flop. <laughs> so, there's been Buddhism on this continent since the mid-1800s. But if you ask a member of the dominant culture how long Buddhism's been in this country, they might say, well, since Suzuki Roshi in 1959 because to a member of the dominant culture all the Asian immigrants that were practicing Buddhism in Hawaii and in California don't really count because they're practicing their folk religion and they're not studying sophisticated educated Buddhism philosophical Buddhism and in that adaptation in the middle of the 20th century of Zen to kind of in, you know because you had Soto Zen missions in Hawaii since the early 20th century, maybe even the 1890s, you know, serving immigrant Japanese communities. But then you had this whole phenomenon of the Zen center, which was when a bunch of young white people wanted to start meditating. You know? And in order for them to make Buddhism palatable, they had to de-religify it and de-Asianify it. Asian, Asianify it, you know? <laughs> And so you have to look, now we're at a place where we can be um, critical about the way it's presented to us and look back and be like, what assumptions did those early people, like Blanche's generation, who I'm totally indebted to, but what assumptions did they carry into this, which were coming from their Eurocentric value system that are not necessarily, um, that uh, confuse the matter in terms of what the tradition is? And there's two things that I can point out right off the bat. There's a lot of things, but there's two things I could point out right off the bat, which I think are interesting. I think in Zen, sometimes there's a belief that this is kind of like um, Star Wars or Clash of the Titans or something like that. There's the monomyth, the hero's journey. I'm an individual that needs to achieve the thing because it's my birthright. 
and I'm going to go forth and against all odds, I'm going to conquer myself and I'm going to conquer nature and I'm going to achieve the thing, which is a very Eurocentric ambition. And it makes it a practice of an individual and a kind of individual carrying themselves forward against everything else, which is also a very Eurocentric worldview. Community is kind of a hindrance. You know. No fostering of community care or collective meaning making. Rain always reminds me of practice. So you have the monomyth. I'm going to conquer myself and conquer nature and become enlightened. And then there's the idea of about what enlightenment means. And it's like, if I do the one thing good enough, then all of a sudden the light's going to go on and uh, all the dominoes will fall and all the mouse traps are going to get set off and uh, everything's going to be different at this one cataclysmic moment. Yeah. And that's kind of this idea, you know, if you think of um, that struggle of the individual, that struggle of yourself with yourself, kind of dying with the incense smoke, with that cataclysmic moment of awakening, rather than every, becoming such a one that everything arises, arises like a thief in an empty house. Yeah. So how do things arise like arising like a thief in an empty house? Well, the, the laboratory that we're creating when we're doing a meditation practice is creating a psychological and emotional space of um, practicing being non-triggered by what's arising. So you make your mind bigger than you believe it to be in your daily life. You make your mind and your whole body as vast as the sky so that when an ocean arises, it arises like a thief in an empty house. There's nothing to cling on to because that notion ain't me. So this is the great renunciation. And being able to be such a one that can practice that relationship with things over and over and over again. So things arise where it's just like, well, it is clear as day to me that this is the thing that I want and this is the thing that I deserve, uh, deserve and this is the thing that's going to make me happy. And I might have to hurt some folks to get it, but it's my birthright or whatever, you know. And to hold your body and mind in such a way where that arises and you go, there's a thought, you know. That's a belief. And that, it, and that it goes away just as easily as it slipped in because you leave all the doors of the house open so all the breezes can come and go. You know? So the heart and mind are like a door, or, or like a house with all these windows and doors and you just leave it open. And you just let all the breezes come and go. You ever, um, when it gets muggy here, you ever uh, wake up in the morning and your room kind of smells like a locker room or something like that, and you got to open up all the windows. 
maybe maybe that's just me. <laughs> you got small rooms, <laughs> but like you gotta open up all the windows and let the breeze go in and out, and let and let the cool breeze cleanse the space. You know, so we're doing that with our hearts and minds when we're sitting zazen. You're opening all the doors, opening all the windows, and letting the cool breeze of non-identifying with what arises cleanse the space. So that you become familiar with the coming and going of notions and you've seen them arise and you've seen them go and you're not buying into it the way that you usually do before you've acquainted yourself with that whole unfolding, that whole trajectory, the whole arising, abiding, and ceasing of all the notions. Because the notions come from beginningless time. Why do you have the thought that you have? Is it the truth revealing itself to you? Or is it an amazing confluence of all kinds of beginningless data just clashing together, creating little ideas in our minds? So this isn't becoming dead to what arises, but it's creating a space where we can become discerning about what arises because you're not bought into everything that does arise. Sometimes when you're, you know, I just had this experience. You're on vacation or something like that, or you're somewhere that you want to be, and there's something that you want to try to do. So you're in Kyoto, and you want to go to Nanzenji Temple. But in between where you're staying in Nanzenji Temple, there's all kinds of interesting shit you want to see. You know? But if you get excited about all the interesting shit on the way, then you never get to Nanzenji Temple. You know? And so... Our desires can be like that. If we get too excited about what arises, then we kind of lose our, our basic orientation. Yeah. And what's the basic orientation of Mahayana Buddhism? Love for all sentient beings. Not conquering yourself so that you're some amazing, enlightened, philosophical, I understand emptiness thing. But it's, but it's boundless love and care for all sentient beings. So sentience, a technical term in Buddhism, it means with a mind. <laughs> so the, 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 the word in Himalayan Buddhism, semchen, mind possessor. So it means everything with consciousness you love. You know? And then in East Asian Buddhism, we, we take it further and we're like, well, rocks have rock consciousness. <laughs> Pebbles have pebble consciousness. So you love all existence. Yeah. So rather than the Eurocentric view of I'm this... Uh, problem that needs to be solved through meditation it's like I have hongaku hongaku means original awakening I'm originally awake I'm originally free I'm originally boundlessly full of love and the practice is how to practice manifesting that manifesting that boundless love manifesting that boundless wakefulness you know you're not overcoming the problem of yourself. You're, you're, you're developing the tools to be who you've always been. Yeah. And that's a very different orientation. And it's a lot less arduous than conquering a problem self. You know, or overcoming your sins. Yeah. Just like, here's the, here's, the, here's the precepts, here's the practice, here's the skill set for how to manifest my awakened nature. Kodosawaki says, 
no matter how much you suffer in this transitory world, you cannot enrich your life. You cannot enrich your life. But when you embrace the transient world as the content of your practice, you practice the Buddha Dharma and your life will be enriched. So this, is, this relates a little bit to Dogen's phrase, to carry yourself forward and experience things is delusion. That myriad things come forth and experience themselves as awakening. You know, so it's not I carrying myself into the world, but it's me having an open heart to the arising of the majesty of this existence. And another fun, uh, I think, thing that's kind of been lost with this hero's journey approach to Zen, there's a story about monk Setan's monastery. There's a monk named Setan. I think he lived in the 1800s. And they called him Thundering Setan. And every night, without anyone knowing how they got there, a bunch of clean vegetables for the next day's soup would appear, washed and cut in a bamboo basket in the kitchen. And Setan Roshi thought, this has to be one of the monks in training that's doing this. So he disguised himself as a black robe monk in training. And he went out and he sat night zazen in the cemetery and just kind of watched to see who was leaving and entering the monastery. And there was a monk named Tairyo. And he would go to the river because in Japan, if you've, has anyone ever been to Japan? Do you notice there's farmland every? You can be in Osaka and if there's empty space, people are growing food on it. There's farmland and yards. There's people growing food everywhere in Japan. And there's also running water all throughout the island. Everywhere you go, you can hear like a river nearby. You know? It's really lovely. But so if you're growing daikon radishes, you're cleaning your daikon radishes and you're cutting off your daikon greens and you're throwing them on the riverbank. So Tairyo used to go get all of the discarded daikon greens, trim them, wash them, put him in a basket on the monastery. And when Setan Roshi saw that Tairo was doing this, he said, that's my successor. That that's the activity that demonstrates the uh, awakened nature. You know, caring so much for the, caring so much for the greens, caring so much for the community, they say that when Suzuki Roshi used to go shopping for vegetables in San Francisco, he used to pick the worst ones because he didn't want them to get left behind. <laughs> yeah. I remember in formal practice, when you're living in a monastery, there's a lot of times when a platter of something is passed to you. <laughs> there's these formal teas and like a platter of little like cookies or something is passed to you. And a lot of times when people get that platter, you see them start to like, they're, they use their eyes and they're kind of scanning the tray of cookies to figure out which one is the best one because, of course, you take the best one for yourself, you know. Or, if you want to be impressive, if you've read this story and you know that a bodhisattva is supposed to take the worst one, then you find the worst one and take it for yourself. But you want everyone to notice that you took the worst one for yourself, you know. And I remember Linda Ruth Cutts used to say, the cookie closest to you is your cookie. Yeah. There's no 
enriching your life project there. <laughs> you know, you just look, this is the one for me. You know? And if anyone's ever been in the situation where caring for another, you can see this arise all the time. You know, there's life before caring for another and life after caring for another. And it's, when you're in the place of life before caring for another, it's easy to imagine that you'd be really put out caring for another. You know? And then when you have life in the midst of caring for another, you realize how um, that, uh, having that as a motivator uh, fills an even greater need than the need for caring for myself. So, if you come in here and you sit down and you want to overcome your shortcomings, try out not worrying about it, I would suggest. And and try out uh, opening your heart to the care for everyone around you and the care for the world, you know. And being open to the transience of it. And not wanting things to change and not wanting things to stay the same. Because that's being alive with the transience of existence. That's taking your place in the world as it exists and not trying to overcome the world as it exists. That kind of wash, sneaky washing the vegetables, there's a word for it in Japanese. It's intoku. It means secret goodness. And it's secret from others and secret from yourself. You're not, you're not trip, you know, it's not some trip of how, you know, some self-improvement trip. Because there's no, uh, that thief of impressiveness is entering the empty house of no spectators. You know? So Dogen Zenji was famous, you know, sometimes they say, uh, What's the most important teaching of Soto Zen? You know, and you would say, well, Dogen Zenji taught just sitting, and that's the center practice of, of Soto Zen. But there's also another big thing that Dogen was big on, and that's uh, ikisoku bukpo. And that means that your bearing, your demeanor, the way you do things is the Dharma. That's why we're so particular about certain forms and things, you know. There's a way to handle objects. There's a way to bow. There's a way to put your clothes in order that is demonstrating your love for yourself, for others, for the objects themselves. And engage, activating and engaging that love is what brings your life to life in an enriching way. It's not like if you just hold still and if you just clear your mind, all of a sudden, poof. You know? But it's becoming such a one that is not hooked by all the notions that arise. Because the mind is bigger. And you just get used to that over and over and over again. You know? In Tibetan, the word for meditation is gom, which means familiarization. You know, you're familiarizing yourself with a skylight quality of mind so that what arises doesn't feel like it's truth revealing itself to you, but it's just a notion. One of many. One of many that you're going to have that day. You know, sometimes I used to sit down, and I, especially when you live in a monastery and, you, and you're sitting like, you know, six to ten hours a day, 
it's amazing all the stuff that arises that you can't do anything about. You can't act on it. You know, I would spend 90 days thinking about meals I could not have. <laughs> you know? And then uh, when you have the opportunity to do whatever you want, you can't remember what it is that you wanted. You know, there's got to be something that I wanted that's going to make, you know, you ever have free time and you think, there's got to be something I could do right now that would make my life better, but I just can't think of it. And if I could think of it, I'd probably be able to have a better life, but I just can't think of it. <laughs> you know? What a lost opportunity. I guess I'll have to do nothing. So to, I, I have that sometimes. I'm like, you know, oh, I have the day off. I'm going to go sit by the river and like not look at my phone or something like that. But that itself becomes this kind of project. You know, and it's like, am I doing it good enough? Yeah. You know, trying to relax. Sometimes like trying to fall asleep, you know. Yeah. But just uh, having that big mind and responding to things as they arise. It's the awakened way. Yeah, let's do questions. Oh, should I say that out loud or just suggest? Would it, does anybody have anything that they'd like to bring up or any questions? Yeah. Hi, um, my name is Jenny, and thank you so much. Um, mm -hmm. I resonate so much <laughs> with everything that you're saying and this drive to be empty and, you know, all mm -hmm. of that. Um, and it just strikes me as so countercultural um, in this, obviously, capitalist society and mm -hmm. academia, and it's like, more, there's no end, right? Um, yeah. So I don't, I don't know what my question is, but, I, you know, sort of how, how do we do this in the midst of systems that just, we can't, we can't get out of them? Yeah. I mean, in terms of the drive. Mm -hmm. With great pain <laughs> and tenderness. Yeah. I used to think dropping out was a viable option. And I tried to, but that's not caring for all sentient beings, you know. I, w I had the certain privilege and positionality where I could just go live in a monastery forever. But uh, it doesn't really seem, I don't know, very valorous, <laughs> you know. Um, but in, in, in the pressure that arises, we can become more discerning about how much of that pressure is coming from inside and outside and how much we're helping the outside pressure to become inside pressure. You know? So there is a way that you can, you know, kind of more deliberately make your life a hermitage from capitalist ambition. You know? But know that... Uh, Peace is not the opposite of struggle, unfortunately. Yeah. Is that good enough? Even though it's not? Yeah. Anything from Zoom land? I just wanted to say, this is Gary, I just wanted to say thank you very much for this. This has opened my mind in different ways. Specifically, the part about Japanese tradition and religion, and 
studying Buddhism in America just mm. really helps me uh, kind of open my mind in that respect. So thank you. Hey, thanks so much. I'm glad. Yeah. So when the mind has been dragged around by all this is um, uncovered, there needs to be a love, I imagine, for all sentient beings because there's that mind in everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you generate that love or is it just out of compassion? I think the compassion seeds the idea and willingness to generate the love. If that makes sense. So there's that, there's that spark there that gets fanned. You know? But like we couldn't come up with anything if there wasn't a seed of it. You know? So the ability to awaken, the ability to love all comes from like an innate capacity to awaken and love. I think. And so our practice is finding ways to amplify our positive qualities. Yeah. If that makes sense. So there's already a flame. I think so. I think so. I think it, I think it's, um, and sometimes we notice that it's there when you least expect it. You know, it's interesting because like I spent a night in jail one time, and there was a guy in my cell that was going in for two years for violating his parole for like substances or something like that. Oh, he actually used to rob people's mailboxes. <laughs> And I was in there just for the night, and I was really perturbed that they told me I was going to get out in the morning, and they weren't letting me out. Because, I don't know if you know this, but guards in jail don't care about you. You can't, like, talk to the manager. So, uh, they're like, yeah, you'll be out in eight hours, and then breakfast, they come by with breakfast, I'm like, I'm not taking breakfast, I'm getting out in a minute. And then they come by with lunch, and I'm like, I don't need lunch, I'm getting out in a minute. <laughs> you know, and then I get out at, like, 4 p.m. or something like that. But there was a guy that was going there for two years, and he was, and he was so, he's like, oh, it's okay, man, I'm sure they'll come by, They're, you know, and he was being so friggin' nice to me, and he steals people's mail, <laughs> you know, because, like, every shitty thing everybody does makes perfect sense, because it's meeting a need that's arisen in their life, you know, it all makes sense, so no, the, none of it doesn't have a, an, a, a cause, everything has a cause. You know, it's just a matter of developing the capacity of having some discernment with what arises, you know, but I think that, but so since there wasn't an, an, a, an acute need to profit off of, you know, um, harming me, what arose was great kindness to me, you know, and that was like kind of eye opening. It's not like people that steal people's mail walk around and, you know, you know, step on birds and stuff like that. There's, like, love there, but there's also this, like, great need there that's arisen. Yeah. And it seems like the only option. Is it? Yeah. Um, you mentioned before about how, you know, you can't really drop out. So do you feel like there's a responsibility for us to change society in a way that it's less exploitative or less harmful to the environment and, and um, less individualistic? Is that, does that go together? Because otherwise, is it just the awareness of the suffering but not really the reality? 
Yeah, yeah. I think I think there's a great responsibility there. And actually, it, a lot of people don't. A lot of people in the U.S. don't want to acknowledge this, but Buddhism is really the first missionary religion. They were the first folks to go along the Silk Road and be like, "Hey, we got something that everyone needs here," you know, because there's kind of like that's kind of unsavory to to like proselytize so much, you know. But like Buddhism really did, and there's this idea of in the early days of just like kind of really spreading and transforming society, you know. But people being people, there's you know you ended up with like. Buddhist armies and Buddhist wars and stuff like that, and like you know, in Southeast Asia, the where Buddhism is the dominant culture, then that's the Buddhists are the people that are oppressing minorities and stuff like that in Southeast Asia. But I think we do have a responsibility, and it begins in community care at the very, very local and immediate level of creating and sustaining uh, circles of care within our own communities and around our temple and just echoing out and spreading more widely like that. Some people might have the temperament to go into like politics and legislation and stuff like that. And like, and it's not, I think it's not naughty to not be able to do that. It's not naughty to not be able to do anything, you know? So that's one of the, that's one of the friction points when we talk about uh, trans- transforming society. I think sometimes we can create, especially because I grew up like, not grew up, but, like, in my, like, young adulthood, I was in activist circles, and there was a lot of pressure. It's like, are you doing enough? Are you doing the thing? You know, are you showing up? Are you, are you vegan? Are you going to kick that cop? You know, like, all the different, like, are you willing to, you know, get arrested or something like that? And it's like, I don't want to get arrested. And, like, so it's, it's, so with the understanding that it's okay to not be up for certain things, but are we creating that circle of care in our communities, you know? And that are we finding our niche of how, what resonates with us? How are we the most productive in that in that realm? And based on the gifts that we have, you know. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. I just um, great talk, and I just wanted to uh, say thanks for um, bringing attention to the grafting of the monomyth and hero's journey to this practice. I don't. You know, it's a, a distraction at best, I think, mm. from what's really happening. And uh, I don't feel like enough people say that. You said it. So, thanks. That's when I sit down to give a Dharma talk, I'm like, what do not enough people say? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm Dave. Um, there's nothing more singular and solitary than sitting and staring at a wall. Mm. Mm. Is that true? I don't have an answer for that. Mm. Could you repeat the statement, please? It was tough to hear. Oh, sure. There's nothing more singular or solitary than um, sitting alone and staring at a wall. Is... Um, Let's say you were on debate team, and that was one position, and now you're on the other team. What's the other position you could say? It's the path to uh, loving all sentient beings. Why? Because you develop awareness of what arises. And, and I would f- further say, being less foolish is a local project. 
you know, local as in like this, this one, you know. So there's a way that being social can make us less foolish, you know. But I think there's a way that if we get to the actual root of what the conduit through which we perceive everything that we're encountering, you know, what are you ex- when you experience things, what are you experiencing? You know, when I look at this stick, am I looking at this stick really? Or am I looking at a reflection of this stick that exists in my consciousness? You know, so there's a school of Buddhist thought that's like, everything that you're experiencing is a modulation of your own consciousness. And the object that you're encountering is the secondary cause for the experience that you're happening, that you're having. But the primary cause for the experience that you're having is your consciousness and the way that it filters what it's apprehending through beginningless karma. So the flavor and the meaning of everything that you're encountering is coming from the perfuming of your consciousness that's been happening from beginningless time. Whether something is good or bad, whether something is ugly or attractive. That's all karma. That's not the object. The object is an innocent bystander. And you're imputing essence onto objects based on your, the karma that's coming from your consciousness. You know, so when we're experiencing anything, we're experiencing mind. You know? So in our practice, we're just like, okay then, what is mind? You know, if that's the conduit through which I'm encountering everything in, in the universe, what is it? How does it function? And in Buddhism we say, mind is... Um, Nothing but that which is clear and knowing. It just has the capacity to reflect. You know, and all the nuance after that is karma. Yeah. So when you sit still and hold the mind open and experience the space-like and sky-like qualities of mind, experience the mirror-like quality of your consciousness, then you're priming yourself to be some, something, a being that can resonate with everything else in your life instead of having this idea that I'm a me carrying myself forward into the world. Yeah. So it's the lab, because it's easier to experience mind in a container where there's a lot less, it's a controlled environment. It's, so Zazen's like the Petri dish for, for like seeing what happens in consciousness. You know? So it's alone, so you can look at the actual functionality of it itself. And then, when you go out into the world, and you're engaging with objects outside of yourself, you have a better understanding of how the mind's functioning. And so, you could say, that person's making me feel this way. But from a practice point of view, it's like, that is an activity that makes perfect sense to that person, and I have the karma for a negative response to arise. And what's going on there and how do I work with that? How do I ask for them to care for me? How do I care for them by asking, you know, in, in the way that I ask? You know? So it's not just like becoming, like rolling over and letting the world just do what it does to you. You know? But it's just like having a little bit more of a bandwidth to be like, I know it makes sense to you to say that to me that way. The, what arises in me when that happens, because of my karma from beginningless time, is that it makes me feel X, Y, and Z. You know, and I know you're not trying to do that or whatever. You know, or are you trying to do that? 
<laughs> you know. <laughs> but and then that, you know, when people when you watch people have conversations that understand how the mind functions, it's a whole different world than watching people have conversations taking appearances as reality. So that's the big thing in Buddhism. That's the big thing about Zazen. The difference between reality and appearances. You know, because without practice, appearances are reality. But then when you have a practice, you're creating the laboratory of discerning the difference between appearances and reality. And becoming intimate with the idea that you might never encounter reality apart from appearances that have been disidentified with. Which is another bummer. <laughs> okay, I saw a little like, can anyone click on what that chat was? There was a chat, but I can't click it. To see is to forget the name of the thing one sees. Sure. Yes. And, and, um, and the seer. What did they ask? It, it was a quote. It said, to see is to forget the name of the thing one sees. Yeah. I just had a thought which was related to this question and maybe a different rebuttal but the notion of the thief in the empty house mm -hmm. if um, the empty house is missing the thief it's like uh, the aloneness is that of the empty house where the thief has gone away he's stolen himself mm -hmm. and there may be the mind that you come back to when you find aloneness <coughs> yeah yeah so and like and like the thief has to be in the empty house to encounter the empty house, you know. So like, it's it's the it's the vex the vexation of of, of self awareness is that it creates this opportunity to start to see two things, you know, or start to see the individual as the center point, you know. But you got to have a little bit of that self awareness because otherwise experience gets really confusing, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I guess I'm, thank you for your talk. I guess I'm fascinated by the hero worship himself, mm. the enlightenment breakthrough thing. I think Zen coming to the United States in particular, um, you could critique it and say um, that it was a feature of coming to the United States that that focus became front and center. Mm. Mm -hmm. 
And so I appreciate your talking to you reminding us of that hero worship thing. Yeah. 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 I think, I think it didn't, yeah, it didn't come from nowhere and it's not an invention of, uh, Eurocentricity. I think, I think, I think when you look at, um, the early Shramana traditions or early Indian yogic traditions, there was, they arose 2,500 years ago at the beginning of early commerce-based society and urbanization. So you have this kind of proto-capitalism that kind of seeded this curiosity about, What's life really about? Is it really about my grain reserves? <laughs> you know? Or is, it, or is there uh, something else going on there? And then I think for a lot of people in that society, it was a kind of quest of the individual. It's very easy to read the Buddha's life story and see it as a quest of an individual. And I think the kind of orientation towards community was really kind of an East Asian orientation because of uh, Confucianism and Neo-Confucianism and that, that, that influence on Chinese, Korean and Japanese style monastic practice that creating harmony of the group is the most important thing but when you look at the way practice is carried out in Japan and you look at the way practice is carried out in the US one of the big distinctions and I think this is because of the kind of uh, racial hegemony of Japan and because it's an island nation there's a little bit more of this sense of like us, you know, and U.S. doesn't have a strong outside of communities that are that are bound together through their marginalization. Um, by and large, there's not a strong sense of us in the United States. I think that conflicts with the way that this practice could look, you know. Yeah. Um, I was sensitive, or I was having a lot of reactions to this kind of what I perceive as a criticism of that monument of the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. Because I think in my time of practice here, I realized that I think I did start that way. Like yeah. I, the, the phrase, when you become you, Zen becomes Zen, I understood that many different ways. But the first time I understood it was like, oh, I'll come here and I'll drop the stuff that's not actually me and I'll become the actual me, the true me. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not how I think of it anymore. Yeah. But, the, um, but my understanding of it now is that I came here with that thought because of my causes and conditions, mm -hmm. and now I love that person. I love that person I was, and I'm very protective of that person because I think. So it's, it's so that's that's where I'm at now. Is that like there's that? But it took a long time for me to realize the community part of this that I love so much now, because I didn't know how to ask for it or mm -hmm. how to look for it. Mm -hmm. But maybe the, the hero's journey got me in the door. Yeah. But it's not what kept me coming. Yeah. 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 Oh. So, when I was in Japan, I couldn't find shaving cream. And so I go, there's convenience stores everywhere, and they have everything. You can get a necktie, you can get <laughs> these buns that have like panko on the outside, and there's curry in the inside. It's excellent, they're $1.40. Really good egg salad sandwiches. Um, can't find coffee without sugar. But I couldn't find shaving cream. And um, so I was shaving. But, and if I skip two days, then I'm screwed. Because then I need clippers or something like that, you know? Um, so I was having to shave every other day. 
And the cool thing about Japan, which is very plastic wasteful, but every hotel or every ryokan gives you a toothbrush and a razor and a little towel to take home. But um, so I got I had razors. They're cheap razors, but I couldn't find shaving cream. And I realized that if I did one stroke and then went like that, all the hair would come out of the razor. I've been shaving my head for 20 years. I did not know that if I go like this and then rinse it, all the hair stuck between the blades comes out. I've been going like this, doing half of my head at a time, and then wondering why there was always gunk in my razor. For 20 years, I've been shaving my head like an idiot. And I shave my head a lot. You know, like if anyone, like who knows how to shave their heads? Zen monks know how to shave their heads. I've been shaving, I've been a priest for 15 years. I've been shaving my head and I've been doing like a whole half of my head at once and not rinsing in between. And so there was all hair stuck in between the blades. But having been put in the situation where I had to, you know, make my razors last, I had to learn. So I went out and I told Minna, my partner that I was traveling with, I'm like, did you know that if you just do like five inches and then stick the razor in a cup of water and shake it, all that hair comes out? And they're like, yeah, everybody knows. <laughs> and I'm like, I've been shaving my hair for 20 years. I did not know that. So, you can do things wrong for a long time. <laughs> so, it's really great that you came out the other end and it was constructive for you. But part of my duty is to do my best. You know, I, and sometimes describing to somebody how to swim might, might screw with their intuition about just figuring it out. So you got to, there's a little, you know, a little bit of both. You got you got there's an intuitive way, but if you're going to make this little platform and I'm going to sit here, I got to be like, hey, I think this monomyth thing might be counterproductive. You know? Yeah, I think... What I wanted to speak to was not owning that as a failure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, part that circle of love has to, has to have a starting point. You know, when you look at an ENSO, so does anyone know, everybody know what an ENSO is? You ever seen that? It becomes, it's like a logo for, like, tech companies now because tech people ruin everything. Um, that's supposed to be funny. <laughs> but uh, the ENSO is that, that ink brush stroke that makes a circle, you know? And there's that, and just like every Chinese um, word, every Chinese character, it comes down with one dot at a 45 degree angle, and then it makes the circle. And that dot at a 45 degree angle is you. You know, that's where the circle of care begins. That's where the brush comes down. The brush comes down in your own heart, and then you are extending it outwards. Because otherwise, you don't really know what it is. You don't really know. You, don't, you need to create that nuclear reactor of love, you know, in yourself. And then that it rolls out widely. You know, so part of that tenderness, and, and the tenderness that I have in teaching, comes from looking back at my own like life and being like, what did little Ricky, that was my name, that was my, my Christian name, what, what, I, what did little Ricky do? What was, how did little Ricky biff it? You know? <laughs> and then share that. Yeah. But little Ricky's great. Little Ricky, you know, he got me here. You know, I like little Ricky. 
even though he's like you know kind of dumb. Yeah. But like, why wouldn't he be? Why wouldn't he be? You know. So we're always going to be a little bit embarrassed of who we were, you know. But who we were brought us to where we are. I would really love to say that who I was and then going through like major transformations and like, oh, that person, oh, love you, whatever. <laughs> it's like some, it doesn't come up in a mm. way where I don't like, again, fully mm. forget everything mm-hmm. and then come back to it and like some sort of a, ah, I mean, they say a coil and I, I now find that like, true but also like super annoying a coil like you know that you're like coiling and it's like oh, not yeah. a straightforward yeah path yeah yeah and yeah. stuff yeah um but yeah i'm forgetting like mm. all the freaking time mm. well that's the thing that's the thing with the whole like cataclysmic awakening thing <laughs> i see no evidence of that <laughs> i've never seen it because i you know like when i was at a monastery and i and i'd you know you could you could really feel like you've really clarified the mind after ninety days of zazen, you know. And then, um, so I I spent you know all of my twenties on a monastery. When I was thirty, we went and started a temple in New Orleans. And I'm like, yeah, I can teach Buddhism. I'm pretty good at this. I'm clever, you know. And I learned all the things because I did all this stuff. And then you know you fast forward a few years, and I'm like, just like getting drunk every day because I don't have my monastery. You know, the monastery gave me that kind of scaffolding to orient me towards what I wanted to be oriented towards. But when that scaffolding was gone, I didn't have the discipline myself. Actually, monasteries aren't good for discipline. They're, 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 um, it's like taking the shade of a big tree. You can just lean on it too much, too hard, you know. And then when you take it, you, when you take that scaffolding away, you your your limbs haven't been strong, strengthened, you know. So I know a lot of people, including my former teacher, that spent a lot of time in a monastery, and as soon as they left it, all hell broke loose because they didn't learn how to live with what arises, you know. Um, so every single thing is a new circumstance to practice with. Yeah. So I want to ask uh, what you did if the monastery didn't help you find the discipline that you needed. Uh, what, what did that practice look like? I was just a fuck-up for like 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was a fuck-up, and I was teaching here while I was a fuck-up. You know? I was a, like, I was, when I was Shuso here, I was a regular at Backlot Bar. You know, um, and uh, I got detained by campus police once when I was walking home from Elysium <laughs> with no shirt on. And I was a Zen teacher. I was a priest, you know. And it was just, uh, that's, it's that struggle. It's like, it's like, how do you do it in this circumstance? And it's just like, you know, you know Kodosawaki says, a thief is still a thief when they're not stealing. You know, and a practitioner is still a practitioner when they're not sitting zazen, because you're orienting yourself towards that thing. You know, so I've oriented my life towards that thing, and that orientation made it so that when 
I was going through the periods of not quite finding my way, I had this point of reference to keep coming back around to and a, and a way of, of, of having this kind of mode of inquiry about what I was doing. I couldn't stop drinking until I got to see how it impacted other people. You know, until I had a, my, my roommate was like, I had to prevent you from like buying drugs last night. You know? Because I'm, I get very happy when I'm drunk. So if someone's selling drugs on the street and they're like, hey, do you guys want like drugs? And I'm like, I don't know anything about drugs. I'm terrified of them. I've never had them. And I'm just like, yeah, well, what do you got? <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, and I got on the train going the wrong way and someone had to basically babysit me. You know, and someone that I'm not that close to had to babysit me. And that was really humiliating for me. And that was enough to kind of, you know, um, to have a point of reference. Now, when I think, when I think of drinking, I feel sick. You know, I'm just like really put off of it because of that experience, you know. But it, that, it, it took a long time. It took a long time of, you know, being all, all, all shades of good and bad at things. You know, and that's that's the beauty of this path. It's like um, the case is not closed on the self. The case is not closed on your development. The case is not closed on your character. You know, and the same of those around you. So every time you meet someone, you're not forgetting who they were, but you're giving everybody the opportunity to surprise you, including yourself. Feel so vulnerable now. <laughs> 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 the kids on TikTok say vulnerability is good. <laughs> the kids on the TikTok. Okay, I'm going to cut it off here because I feel like I've gone immensely long. Thank you so much.